1: Piki mai, kāke mai, and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alice Allison Balance tenae. Tonight we are all about cyanobacteria, which you might also know as blue-green algae. They're a kind of microalgae. That is, they are very small. And unlike the more familiar macroalgae or seaweeds that you find in the sea, you find microalgae in freshwater. Think rivers and lakes. Some species are quite benign and might even produce useful bioactive substances. But there are other species that produce toxins. And these are the ones we hear about when local councils start warning us about toxic algal blooms, usually in summer. Jonathan Puddock is an algal biochemist at the Cawthorn Institute in Nelson, whose scientists do a lot of work with cyanobacteria. Jonathan is particularly interested in finding out more about their toxins. And I catch up with him in Cawthron's new Envirotech Laboratory to find out about a Marsden-funded project that he's working
2: on. Where I'm going to take you into is my favourite place, which is our culture room. And so this is where we keep New Zealand's nationally significant culture collection of microalgae. And so that's funded by the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. And basically they task us with um, finding interesting strains of these little floating plants which exist in our marine and freshwater environments around New Zealand and isolating them and then taking care of them so that researchers in the future who might need to use them can actually get access to them. Oh, perfect timing. Doors just opened. (laughs) We have the culture collection itself in. One room and then we have a research room as well where the scientists get to take those algae and do different experiments using them. So what they're trying to do is basically maybe understand the toxins which they're producing. That's one big focus of our research. We do a lot on seafood safety and also freshwater cyanobacterial toxins. So when you see warning signs going up around lakes and rivers, that's because some cyanobacteria produce compounds which are harmful for us and especially for animals as well. Pretty bad for dogs, some of them. Yeah, so dogs really, really like the smell of cyanobacteria, whereas humans don't like it quite so much. What do they smell of? Oh, a little bit musty, so you know, sort of that uh, rotting leaf smell. So, you know, if a dog is going out to eat something yuck in the backyard... Uh, when it smells a cyanobacteria mat on the side of a river, it just goes, Oh wow, that's lovely. Gets in there and it takes a big stomach full of it. And if that cyanobacteria produces toxins, basically, you know, it's getting this really big dose of something which is harmful for it, and quite often they'll end up dying.
1: So it's important to find out about. Now, just coming back to this room, so you've got some sets of shelves and Lots and lots of flasks and vials and little pottles, they don't take up a lot of room, do they?
2: No, no, it's quite convenient. So what does it take to keep them alive? So they're quite easy, they live a really simple lifestyle, so basically they harvest energy from the sun, like a plant would, and they turn that into sugars and they basically only need a few uh, nutrients to be able to do that. And so that's why we see blooms in our lakes and rivers, is because we're throwing that ecosystem out of balance and so we're putting in more nutrients than would normally be there and the cyanobacteria and the algae are just able to take off and grow using that so usually they're nutrient limited and they wouldn't grow that much but you know we give it to them and they will use it so basically we just need to change the media that's what we grow them in that's this liquid that has some nutrients and some trace elements there and we give them some light and we turn that light off and on every 12 hours and they will grow quite happily until they've run out of the nutrients in the media
1: Or until you decide to experiment with them. Yes,
2: or until I harvest them and (laughs) extract them.
1: So are all of these things native species or are they cosmopolitan species? What do we know about them?
2: Lots of the cyanobacteria that we see in lakes around New Zealand we will see in um, other places around the world. That's what we'd sort of classify as a cosmopolitan species. So microcystis is one that we do a lot of work on, and you see that all around the globe. We have sort of more specific cyanobacteria that we have around the place. So we have a lot dolo- of Dolichospermum bermum grows in some of our lakes, and sort of we've had a shift in our blooms from microcystis over the sort of last decade towards more blooms of Dolichospermum. And the good thing about that is Dolichospermum in New Zealand hasn't been reported to produce toxins, whereas microcystis does produce toxins quite frequently.
1: So what do you think is driving the change? Is that nutrients, do you think? Is it warmer temperatures? Any idea?
2: No, and that's the big question, really, and we've got a lot of ideas about how we could (laughs) try and understand that a little bit more, and people have been working on that for um, about 20 years or so. Yes, it could be nutrients, it could be sort of trace minerals um, which are present in the water. I've got some theories to do with how it might be sort of cyanobacteria which have sunk down into the bottom of the lake and uh, sitting in the sediment, not actually living but being dormant, getting reintroduced into the water column. And if they get reintroduced into the water column at a certain time, then maybe they thrive um, and we're seeing a lot more of that happening but That's a project for another year.
1: That strategy makes them sound like real survivors, though.
2: Yeah, yeah. When I'm lecturing about this, I sort of describe um, that dormant stage as them going down into a nuclear bunker. And so they've got these specific strategies to be able to do that. They'll sort of store away lots of food for them, so carbohydrates, and um, they'll make a nice sort of thick cell membrane or a wall around the cells and so they get prepared when conditions aren't looking so favourable in a lake and then down they go and they sit at the bottom and they just wait.
1: Now you talked about things that you might like to work on in the future. What are you working on at the
2: moment? Uh, so right now one of the big things I'm working on is a Marsden funded project and so Marsden funds fundamental research in New Zealand, so this is sort of the cutting-edge stuff which might not actually have an application in the future. And so my um, idea that I wanted to test for my Marsden project was about whether non-toxic cyanobacteria are out in the environment and toxic cyanobacteria are actually cooperating, so whether they act as a community. And so that idea sort of comes... From a paper which was released five years ago, where someone saw that non toxic cyanobacteria could actually sequester toxins from the external environment. And so that gave me the idea well, you know, if they're taking up the toxins, maybe they can actually use them. And so, sort of, the piece of information that's missing from this is that. We don't actually believe that cyanobacteria produce toxins to kill us and to kill dogs which are playing down by the river. They developed the ability to produce toxins long before there was any predators for them around and they probably produced them for some other purpose so some sort of competitive advantage that allows them to you know, thrive in their environment. And so my idea is that the reason that the toxic cyanobacteria have never out-competed the non-toxic ones is because they're actually sharing the toxins amongst themselves.
1: So this could be a number of things. This could be accidental, it could be the non-toxic ones deliberately benefiting from the toxic ones who have to put the effort into making those toxins.
2: Yeah, so it could be that they're sort of taking advantage of their toxic friends. It could also be that the toxic cells actually benefit as well. So there is a competitive advantage by being numerically dominant in an environment. So if you've got sort of more cells there, it means you're less likely to get predated upon. With cyanobacteria it means that they can be more buoyant so some types of cyanobacteria are able to go up and down through the water column like a submarine and what that means is because they use light to produce their energy they can go up to the surface where there's more light during the day harvest that sunlight and then they can go down to the bottom during the night where there's usually more nutrients in a lake Um, so being able to do that and being able to do it better is an advantage as well and so the way that we have been tackling that is we've sort of taken that bigger hypothesis and broken it down into three questions that we thought were key so we wanted to know Hey, does this toxin sequestration happen just with this one type of cyanobacteria or does it happen more widely? So we took 18 different um, cyanobacteria isolates.
1: How many have you actually got in here? Just go uh, we've got about
2: 500 strains of cyanobacteria, and that probably spans around about um, sort of 50 different species. Mm.
1: So you took 18 strains?
2: 18 strains and that spanned 12 different genera, broadly different types of cyanobacteria and so they might have different growth strategies, they might sort of float freely in the water column or they might sit on the base of a lake or of a river and they might grow as filaments or they might grow as single cells so we tried to get a sort of wide array of different types of cyanobacteria. The one caveat was that they weren't able to produce toxins. Um, A lot of our strains are actually toxin producers.
1: Naturally, though, what would the ratio be of those toxic to non-toxic strains?
2: It changes during season, actually, so you know at the beginning you might have um, sort of more toxic strains compared to non-toxic ones, and then it changes.
1: Then I mean, what did you do?
2: We provided them with some microcystin, so that's the toxin that we were um, looking at, and assessed whether the microcystins ended up in the cells or not. And so what we found was that actually quite a large range of the different cyanobacteria actually took up the toxins. So there was 13 of the 18 took it up.
1: That's quite a few. Did you expect that many?
2: No, I didn't expect that many. And also the types of cyanobacteria which actually took up the toxins, it was the opposite from what I expected as well. So I was expecting a scenario of cooperation where... The most closely related cyanobacteria would take up the toxins, but ones which were less closely related probably wouldn't. And what I found was that the most close ones did not take up the toxins and the less closely related ones did. So that was a bit of a surprise, and you know, maybe that means that we're looking at a scenario here where those non toxic strains are taking advantage of their toxic friends. Rather than the other way around. The second question is can they actually use those toxins? So, in toxic cyanobacteria, what we see is that they have altered photosynthesis, so they are more efficient at forming that than non toxic cyanobacteria. And so, basically, that's the way they produce the energy, and it is maybe the competitive advantage that they get, but no one's really sort of conclusively proven that and so step two is to look at the photosynthesis of a cyanobacteria which has been provided with microcystin and taken it up and so what we find is that we do see changes in photosynthesis in the non-toxic cyanobacteria which have sequestered those toxins so that's quite interesting.
1: So do you have any thoughts as to why having toxins might make you better at photosynthesizing?
2: No. (laughs) So there's a few theories around it. Some of it's to do with sort of minimising oxidative damage of proteins, so whether the toxins are protective for those um, cyanobacteria. And so when cyanobacteria grow in the natural environment in these lakes, they, they form what we call scums, which is these sort of dense accumulations of cells at the top of the water column. And those environments we've shown are really sort of damaging for the cells. They're quite harsh environments that they end up creating because they're up there, they've got lots of sunlight banging onto them. Through photosynthesis, what you do is you take the carbon dioxide out of the water and you produce a lot of oxygen through that. So there's sort of a High concentration of oxygen present. You've taken away the carbon dioxide in the water, which means the water becomes quite basic. So usually water's around about pH 7. And these scums which form, the pH goes up to around about 10 or so.
1: That's a huge change for an organism to have to deal with.
2: Yeah, and a pH shift of 3 is quite giant. And, you know, it's funny that in order to produce energy, they actually place themselves in this nasty environment.
1: And you think the toxins might go some way to helping them mitigate that?
2: Yeah, that's the theory, is that by coincidence they're bad for us, but actually for the cells themselves, they're helpful in some way.
1: If this idea is right, that the toxins are somehow... Bestowing a benefit on the cyanobacteria, then you could see why one that doesn't have some might like some.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, the where we want to take that is, um, we can already show that sequestering toxins alters photosynthesis, but we want to know sort of how that actually affects the growing environment of the cyanobacteria. And so, the way that we're going to do that over the last year of the project. We've got these bioreactors where we can grow the algae and with those we've got six different vessels and we can alter the light intensity and the temperature in each of those vessels. And so what we do is we set up these experiments um, where we change the environmental conditions in different vessels and we figure out what's the optimum place where those cyanobacteria are able to grow. And so if we do that with the non-toxic strain without any microcystin, we see where they'd naturally grow. And then if we supply them with microcystin, um, we see if that shifts. And so that will give us an idea of, okay, well if you've got toxins, um, that means that you know you grow better in this environment or you just grow better overall. That's some of the things that we'll start to find out. And so question three is, is this actually plausible that this would happen in the natural environment? And so one of my master's students, uh, Rosella, she's been working on that question and she's been trying to understand some of those fundamental limitations to what I'm proposing here and so what I mean by that is if the toxic cyanobacteria produce the cells that's all nice and good but for the non-toxic ones to get them you actually have to have that toxin out in the um, water floating around so that they can take it up and so uh, it's been sort of something that people have debated about for many years is um, when we see these toxins out floating around in the water is that because the cells die or is that because the cyanobacteria actually export it out and why would they actually export it out and so I've actually been trying to answer this question for the last five years. so it's actually quite fun to you know have another go at it. And the big limitation that we had previously when we tried to look at this is we weren't actually able to show whether the cyanobacteria we we're looking at were alive or dead. If you look at them just naturally under a microscope, they look the same until they really start to um, degrade. So she's been working on a microscopy method um, using a stain which permeates through the cell membrane if there's holes in it, but it doesn't if the cells are still alive and intact and functioning normally. And we've had some troubles with this in the past. Just because with fluorescence microscopy what you do is you have to excite at one wavelength of light and what happens is another wavelength of light gets emitted. Previous dyes and stains that we've tried to use and other assays um, just haven't been able to work with cyanobacteria. One of the big problems is that chlorophyll, which is what the cyanobacteria and plants use to perform photosynthesis, actually fluoresces as well. So you've got this nasty background signal Papa. in there. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we need a way to get around it. And um, so, yeah, Rosella's been working hard and she's sort of looking at the amount of toxin which ends up outside of the cells versus the amount of cells which have actually died. And so she's going to do a bit of a mass balance of that. And if there's more toxins outside of the cells, than uh, we would expect, according to the amount of cells which have actually died during the experiment, that gives a bit more solid evidence that the toxins actually get exported out of the cells rather than just through cell lysis.
1: Could it be that they're exporting their toxin Because they've just made too much and it's actually not good for them as well.
2: It might be. (laughs) So it opens up whole new avenues of questions that we can actually ask. And so one of the things that we found out from the sequestration experiments that I described is that when we look at microcystin sequestration and non-toxic strain, the amount of toxin that they accumulate is quite a lot less than what we see in a toxic strain and the other thing we found which actually caused us lots of problems is that when we're um, detecting toxins with our usual methods um, we're only actually detecting the free toxins which are inside of the cells so it seems like these cyanobacteria produce a lot more toxins than they actually need to perform that function of helping out with their photosynthesis and, you know, maybe they do need a way to get it out of the cells.
1: So maybe the non-toxic ones that are borrowing some of the toxins are just going, well, actually, you really only need a little bit... So we'll just take a little bit. <laughs>
2: yeah, and it's quite plausible that that would have evolved as well. You know, it fits in with the overall theory that if toxic cells just naturally need to export that out and get rid of it, that the non-toxic ones might have taken advantage of that over the years.
1: Yeah, because why would you spend energy doing it if you don't need to?
2: Yeah, no. No, it's always better to have someone else um, help you out along the way. Do the hard work. Mm-hmm. So I thought that Rosella might want to show you some of the microscopy stuff that she's been doing.
0: Sounds great. So we've left the algal lab, and what are we looking at? We have here just a confocal microscope that is attached to a high light intensity source, a mercury lamp that emits light at a broad spectrum. And basically inside the microscope we have some filters so that we can um, narrow down that um, spectrum to the wavelength that we're interested in. So Jonathan has explained a little bit about what you're doing, which is trying to differentiate between dead cells and live cells, being part of it. So do you want to just step me through what you might do on an average day? I have to prepare, of course, the samples by adding this dye that I'm using. So it's a nucleic acid stain. It permeates the cells that have been damaged, binds to the nucleic acids, and then emits a very bright green fluorescence, I prepared the slides by just um, putting a drop of the sample on it and sealing it with some nail polish so that it doesn't evaporate while well. <laughs>
1: I'm <laughs> like laughing it. just because nail polish
0: pops up all the time in science. <laughs> yeah, <no>. in <laughs> the honest ways. <laughs> Carry on. Um, it's the only time I use it. <laughs> so I've already found my cells here. So this is nodularia. It's a filamentous cyanobacterium. It's a little wriggly green line, basically. A
2: beautiful wriggly green line.
0: (laughs) What's beautiful
1: about it, Jonathan? Oh, you know, it's got that nice (laughs)
2: granulation uh, from all the carbohydrates that it's been storing. Just the cell shape of it looks nice, doesn't it? Yeah, it just forms
0: some really cool patterns and stuff. And um, I'll show you now under the uh, fluorescent light, it's kind of really cool. Um,
2: Beautiful under a microscope, not so much beautiful when it's in your lake.
0: I open the shutter and... Oh, it's turned red. Yeah. So we have a... Instead of a
2: beautiful emerald green.
0: Yes, we have a black background and a bright red. So this is red because of the chlorophyll? This is red because of the chlorophyll, yes. Yeah, Yeah, so Um, the dead cells are the bright green ones. The the dead cells are the bright green ones.
1: Um, Very clear whether you've got dead or live cells. And so then...
0: From that, you can work out whether there's more toxin around than you were expecting from the number of dead cells.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: And you see, some of the cells have less. I think those are the heterocysts or akinetes.
2: So, yeah, you said um, two nice words here the heterocytes and the akinetes. Which you are
0: going to explain for us. (laughs) Yeah, so when
2: we were talking before about um, cells going dormant at the bottom of lakes and waiting around into an opportune moment to come back, uh, they're akinetes. And this type of cyanobacteria are uh, the specialised cells that do that and so like we were saying um, before they have sort of different ways that they prepare for that so one of the ways is that they'll um, sort of be shutting down photosynthesis and getting ready to basically go into dormancy so they sort of don't want to be a productive cell at that point in time. And then Rosella mentioned heterocytes as well. And so those are specialised cells which allow cyanobacteria, just certain types of cyanobacteria, to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and to turn it into usable nitrogen. So... think about 80% of the air that we breathe is actually nitrogen but most organisms can't actually use that nitrogen so some cyanobacteria are a little bit too clever for us and they can take it out they can take atmospheric nitrogen and turn it into something that they can use to be able to grow so before whilst we were talking about sort of nutrient limitation some cyanobacteria are actually clever enough to get around that by creating their own nutrient supply. So they also shut down photosynthesis just because they can't um, fix nitrogen at the same time as producing oxygen from photosynthesis.
1: So there might be just tiny little algae, but they're quite smart, aren't
2: they? Oh, yeah. No, they're they're very, very clever. It's amazing what um, sort of single-celled organisms, how clever they can actually be. So sort of we give ourselves um, tons of advantages by being multicellular, but you know, you see um, cyanobacteria and other microorganisms, they get around lots of those limitations in really clever ways.
1: Now Rosella's just flicking through some images, and we've got those ones that look like worms, and then you've got little Clusters of dots. So yeah, what are
0: those so ones? Those are microcystis.
2: Microcystis was that cyanobacteria that we were talking about before, and so they have little spherical cells, and they form these colonies. So lots of cells sticking together, sort of hundreds of thousands. And yeah, we used to see lots of them around New Zealand lakes, um, but we're seeing more Dolichospermum. Um, Lately, which is a sort of filamentous type of cyanobacteria. So they have long chains of cells stuck together, kind of like a necklace.
1: How do do they actually import and export the toxins? Are they just somehow absorbing it through their cell wall?
2: Oh, not sure. So, yeah, right at the beginning, these sort of questions are stuff that we have no idea about. So I guess that's the next step after this project, if we sort of show that toxin sequestration is a real thing, is how does the non-toxic cells get it into their inside? So, yeah, that's the next question.
1: (laughs) So you're trying to find out if they're buddies in the first place and then how they're buddies. Yeah, how
2: they're taking advantage of their friends.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Jonathan. That was Cawthron Institute scientist Jonathan Puddock. And we also heard from master's student Rosella Nicolai. To listen to tonight's show again head to our web page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. While you're there, you can catch up with the latest episodes of the Elemental Chemistry podcast, Phosphorus and Platinum. But wait, there's more. There's also a bonus episode celebrating the fact that, inspired by his work on the podcast, Professor Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology has just had a paper Published in the prestigious Nature Chemistry Journal. The paper is called The Most Boring Chemical Element, and in that bonus episode, Alan and I have a chat about what he concluded. Stay in touch. We are RNZ Science on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Moriora.